Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Hope you and yours are doing well. We are joined uh, with what's going to be a new voice here at the podcast, but something tells me uh, this will not be his last time that he joins us. He and I have only been together for like three minutes in a random toy store uh, before, of all places. <laughs> but uh, I, I knew quickly when, when I was chatting with him, you, you know, sometimes you just resonate with someone, and, and I resonated with him. His name is Ryan Waller, hails from Dallas, Texas, uh, and he's got a new book coming out, Depression, Anxiety, and Other Things We Don't Want to Talk About. And so I think this is a, uh, a beautiful dialogue, especially to begin a year, to leave what was a really, really rough year for a lot of folks, uh, and just kind of hear what he's putting into the world. So uh, with that being said, Ryan, welcome to the table. Thanks for having me. And you know, Ashton, we may have only had a few minutes at that toy store, but they were magical, my friend. They yeah, were really yeah, maybe incredible. Maybe we should put some like context around why you and I were in a toy store. Um, <laughs> you know, it was it was I think it was Christmas or something like that, and our kids were shopping, and our wives know shopping. each other, so it was. They were, our wives were like, "You guys should go talk. Y'all are like each other." Um, <laughs> And then we found ourselves doing that, yeah. sort of uh, connecting immediately, as you say. It, it really was. Uh, it was fun. It yes. was terrific. Yeah. So um, before we get going into kind of this work that you're putting into the world, um, where do we begin with like you and your story? When, when you introduce yourself in, the, in your work in the world, you know, I know that you are uh, a therapist, but I know that just, you know, connecting the dots, connecting the dots looking backwards uh, pastor, mm. attorney. Uh, there's a lot of hats you've worn in a short run. Um, where do you begin when you introduce yourself and your work in the world? Oh, well, I appreciate you describing it as a short run because it's <laughs> starting to feel longer and longer. <laughs> no, I definitely do describe myself, yeah, you know, professionally as a, a therapist and a, and a writer, but I've done a few different things, all of which I feel like uh, you know, looking back on it, I'm grateful for, and I think they formed me in a particular way to do the work that I do now in a particular way. Um, uh, but, you know, some other people might look at it and it might even appear a bit schizophrenic. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I studied philosophy, um, I guess, is maybe kind of the origin point in undergrad. And then from there, um, probably if I had more courage back then, I would have gone and studied uh, philosophy at the graduate level. Yeah. Um, but instead, I, I became an attorney because that's sort of what you do if you have a philosophy major. It's either that <laughs> or like or do nothing or the few brave people go on straight into, you know, academia. Yeah. But uh, I became a lawyer practice for a bit. Didn't feel uh, never really felt satisfied. Didn't really picture myself being an attorney for 30 years as evidenced by, I began uh, theological training while I was hmm. in law school. Um, so I pursued that. And by the time I finished law school, I wasn't finished with the theological training. So I, I practiced law for a few years, but still just really felt um, just not settled, not feeling like I was finding the purpose and the meaning that I wanted in life. And so I returned and finished the theological training. And then long story short, uh, taught religion in a college prep school for a few years, ultimately got ordained as an Episcopal priest and served in a church. And so I was doing that teacher pastor work for uh, the better part of a decade. And near the end of that work be became really interested in the intersection of psychology and spirituality 
and pursued uh, another graduate degree um, in counseling psychology. And then once I finished that, transitioned um, uh, from the church into into private practice where I'm at now. So in a nutshell, yeah. Yeah. So you're saying you've got a very salty book collection. That's what you're telling me. It's a <laughs> salty book collection. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, I love Although you'd it. be surprised by how much lowbrow stuff is in there. But, hey, well, know. ditto right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hear you. Um, so like, let's just start kind of digging right into um, this book. It releases uh, January 5th. Uh, depression, anxiety, and other things we don't want to talk about. I, I guess first question: Why this book? Why now? Did it did it stem from hundreds and hundreds of folks that you had, you know, kind of walked with, uh, or is this just the dialogue that we need to be having today? Mm, yeah, I'd say yes, yes, and then even <laughs> one more yes. So it stemmed from you know working with folks, stemmed from us needing to have the the dialogue but then the third yes and that's where i'll start is it stemmed from me being someone who struggles with depression and anxiety mm. you know i very much describe myself throughout the book as a co-sufferer mm. and that's something that i certainly want people to know and i even begin the book kind of telling a bit of my own story is that you know near the end of my time at, at the church I, I found myself in a deep deep depression um and I've been struggling uh, with mostly anxiety and, and some depression, you know, for about as long as I can remember. But I was one of those people, and this is a huge, you know, audience that I, that I hope um, kind of enters into this conversation that I call the silent sufferers. I, I suffered for most of my life until my early 30s, just sort of believing that this is how I was and this is how I had to be. So I understood even as a as a young child that I was more nervous than my peers. They seemed to not get as worked up about things. Um, but but over time, I just kind of thought, well, you know, that's the case. I recognize that this is different, but I didn't have a name to it. I didn't have the words to describe what it was that I was feeling. And as I got older and older, that anxiety would be followed by waves of despair and, and hopelessness. But I still really didn't know what it was. And, and it, when it wasn't until I, I was in my early 30s that I finally said, you know, I, I don't think I have to live this way. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm going to seek out some professional help. And I can really, not to get too binary, but I can like divide my life into two halves, mm -hmm. which is the half that, that lived without going to therapy, without attending support groups, without taking medication, and then the half where I availed myself to these healing resources. And I can just straight up tell you, like, um, I don't ever want to go back <laughs> to living the way that I was living before, not allowing myself the resources that I need to be the healthiest version of myself. So I start from that place. Yeah. So why, why this book and why now? Well, I did it because I suffered, I think, needlessly for far too long. Wow. And if telling my story and writing and talking about mental health can help anyone be able to have, um, you know, the resources they need or the direction or maybe even the courage to raise their hand and say, you know what, I think I might need to talk to someone as well. I think I've got something going on. If my story can help them do that, 
then it's all worth it. Yep. And so, so I, I start and write from my own sort of place of pain and my own identifying as I too, you know, I too suffer. Hmm. Beautiful. Um, yeah. But the, the other two are that, yeah, I mean, we all know, you know, from 2020, this is uh, mental health and, you know, and our co- collective sort of mental illness is primary, right? We're seeing, yep. you know, suicide yep. now is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It's the second leading cause of death among adolescents. So we've got to be talking about it. And then of course, yes, the, the first yes is just that I see people each and every day in my own, you know, clinical practice. So I know how pervasive this is. And so if I can take a little bit of what I've learned in working with folks and extend that out to others that I'm not going to be able to personally work with, then, you know, that's why I write. Yeah. So. Yeah. Talk to me about naming it. it. It seems like when you say, I can divide my life into two halves, mm-hmm. um, we've all had that moment, whether it's someone mirroring something to us or something on a page just jumps out and we finally had a name for this idea or thought uh, that we've had for so long. How much of your work, or should I say practice, is in helping people like, name these things it seems to me that that like that is if we can if we can name it you know like oh that's depression oh that's anxiety then all of a sudden does it kind of can it lose some of the grip and i'm just asking the question i don't know the answer yeah no it's a terrific question and and yes i think the answer is is yes so much of mental health struggles um when they remain internalized they, they, the way that they work upon our psyche is that they, they, they tell us that what we are is uh, we're worthless, mm. right? Or we are a person that has no hope, or we are a person that is fundamentally entrenched in self-destructive patterns, or we are nothing but a person who's going to numb our pain away through some kind of substance, and we believe these narratives about ourselves as if they're actually true descriptors of who we are. And until we sort of take those narratives and externalize them and allow for someone else who's trained to kind of listen to them and be able to identify, well, wait a second, right? That thought pattern that you're having, that sounds a whole lot like clinical depression. Or what you're describing going on with your body physiologically where you think you're going to die, that is what we call a panic disorder. Or the voices that you're hearing in your head, right, you are hearing those, Um, you know, that could be a symptom of schizophrenia. When we name these things, what we do is we draw them out from our internal world where they just feel like – an untreatable sickness and what they become is something that, Oh my goodness, this isn't something that's unique to me. This is something that is, that is common to lots and lots of people. And now that we've put it out there, Oh my goodness, you're saying this is what I have. Oh, there's also treatment protocol. So when someone takes that, that, that thing that's internal and and it's allowed to have a name, then it's allowed to be seen, which means it's allowed to be, treated. And so once we do that, there can be such great hope by just by just being able to name it, because then it's not just this sort of intractable, yeah. mysterious force that's eating us up inside, but it's, it's an actual condition or an illness or however you want to describe it 
where we can go to work on it and we can do something with it and it can be um, dramatically improved. (laughs) So there's, there's a, there's a great, there's a great deal of power in just being able, just being able to name it. Yeah. Did, did your journey, did you ever have a moment where you were able to consciously shift from I am depressed to I experience depression? I think those mm-hmm. are two massive, uh, those are two different worlds. Um, mm-hmm. d- did you ever have that experience or, yeah, I'd just love to ask that. Yeah, I really like that you asked that question. It's so funny because I don't often get asked that about myself, Um uh, but I'm so glad you did because this is really this is really important to me. That has been an ongoing process, mm. and it's a and it's a difficult one because for for many different reasons when it comes to to mental health, the way that the language that you just used is so common, right? We say things like that, like you know, I'll say I'm I, I'm, I'm angry, I'm, depressed. I'm sad. I'm, I'm angry. I, I'm sad. I'm depressed. Or we get a diagnosis and someone will say, well, you know, I am bipolar, right? Or I am schizophrenic as opposed to saying, no, I have bipolar or I have, you know, I suffer from schizophrenia or whatever it is in the same way that we do with other diseases, right? I have cancer. No one ever says I am cancer. No one ever yeah. says that, right? Yeah. Um, I am a diabetic, right? I am not diabetes, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, for me, and for a lot of people that I know, this is a really tough one. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons I think, too, having these conversations are so important because one of the reasons we resist this conversation, I think, is that we don't want to be labeled as such. Mm-hmm. There seems to be something about raising your hand and saying, okay, I think I suffer from depression. We keep ourselves from doing that because we feel like if we get labeled as a depressive, that is somehow a label that is that is going to be permanent and concrete upon our lives. Identity conversation. It's an identity conversation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And particularly with mental health, that's an identity that pretty much none of us want to have because it's been so stigmatized, not only in sort of the just, uh, I mean, any culture, pick a culture, be it a, be it a faith community or any kind of secular community, right? Nobody wants to be thought of as quote unquote crazy or 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 marked in this way where your internal processing is somehow off because then you're a person that perhaps cannot be trusted or there's all sorts of other shame that just gets attached to it. And so we don't want to talk about it in that way because we don't want that label. So the part of the conversation of helping us understand that the way we talk about these things is super important. So for instance, there was a recent study, and I promise I'm going to answer your question directly about my own self, but they did a study where they were treating people who suffer from substance use disorder. So serious um, addiction, if you will, to alcohol. These were hospitalized patients. And in the study, instead of referring to them as alcoholics, which is has been common practice for a really, really long time, they referred to the patients as having, you know, been suffering from substance use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe, which is exactly how the DSM, which is our sort of Bible of psychiatry, that's how we, that's the actual clinical medical term. Like the word alcoholic's not in there. It's like yeah. not, not a thing, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so what they've discovered in, in this particular study is that the more we took this, these, this language and made it less about identity and more about condition, we saw people retained their dignity and had better outcomes wow. than those who were referred to their condition as, as you know, part of their identity. Wow. And, and so it, there's power. And, and that's not to say, and for anyone that's listening that's, that's in recovery and thinks of themselves as an alcoholic or any kind of an addict, if that is your own language that is empowering for you to maintain your recovery and to move further into the the, the healthiest version of yourself, more power to you. That's a no way to say you need to remove yeah. that language. Yeah. But having this conversation around, if you do suffer from depression, that does not mean that's going to become the core of your identity, and it's going to color everything else in your life. It's a part of your life. It's a part of your life. So for me, that's been a continuing, ongoing, ongoing work. And I'll be honest with you, when you ask me if there's a moment in which I was actually able to conceive of myself as having depression versus being a depressive, I can tell you this is as messy as any mental health struggle in that it depends on what day it is, my Mm -hmm. friend. Yeah. Yeah. Because if I'm if I'm feeling healthy, right, and I can reflect upon it and I can say, yeah, you know, this yeah. is part of it. But if I'm in a depressive episode and if I'm left to sort of my own devices and I'm listening to my own brain, no, mm-hmm. I'm going to think of myself as nothing but depression. Yeah, I, I you, am depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you wrote this depression is super tricky. And maybe that was probably not your sentence. That was like my sentence, mm-hmm. but like in the book. You know, you were just saying this thing can, it can sneak up on you. It can, it can be very camouflaged um, if you aren't careful. That's right. It's, it's incredibly intelligent, right? Depression, depression and, and other forms of mental health struggles will tell you to do exactly what you shouldn't do for your own health. They literally, your brain will lie to you, mm. right? And your feelings will lead you in the, in, in a wrong direction, which is, makes it so, so tricky. So you, if you think about other forms of, of illness or other kinds of pain, right? So say you sprain your ankle, you're running along, you sprain your ankle, you instinctively, right, pull that, pull that ankle up off the ground, right? Yeah. So you'll see, you'll see the body react and you know the the brain understands okay what i need to do is not put pressure on that right now because that 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 pain is really really severe we do that if you take depression a lot of times and just to continue to use depression as kind of the simplest example um oftentimes when someone is depressed they'll have the tendency to isolate hmm. so they'll want to withdraw from 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 the people that they love, they'll want to withdraw from their doctors, they'll want to withdraw from their community, they'll want to withdraw from exercise, they'll want to withdraw from sleep, from food, all the things that if they're thinking clearly, they know will promote their health, their brain will tell them to do the exact opposite. So very unlike when the brain will tell you, don't put weight on that foot, it's going to hurt worse, you need to go have somebody look at it. With depression, the brain will feed it's almost like it would say you know shove that foot into the ground make that hurt worse make that hurt worse because that'll somehow make you feel better it's so cunning which again that's where the importance of we can't keep this internalized this has got to be externalized so as you say it can be mirrored back to you and someone can help 
you see what's actually going on with yeah. your thought patterns. Yeah. yeah. Done in isolation, it's um it, it doesn't typically doesn't have good outcomes. Yeah. What do you wish more people understood about this conversation? I wish they understood that it's far more widespread than they think. You know, on average, in a in a typical year in recent memory in the United States. Um, it's about one in four Americans will experience a mental health struggle each and every year. So if we're just taking the data on its face, all right, 25%, well, the reality is that's probably vastly underreported. It's probably closer to, who knows, maybe 40%. And then when you throw in, you know, the kind of year that we've had, I mean, Right now, I just saw a study the other day that was saying three out of every four young adults during this pandemic has had a mental health struggle that rises to clinically significant. So, I mean, so one of the things I just want people to know is that, like, it's pervasive and um, that doesn't have to mean that, like, kind of the world is is falling apart as, as some people try to take that data. But it's just to say, like, look, this is something that's really common to the human experience and it doesn't have to be a shameful yeah, thing, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be shameful, you know? And so I, I want people to know how normalized it is and connected to that. I want them to know that this isn't something that they chose to have or that was brought upon them by certain decisions that they've made. I think for a long time, that's really been a powerful theme and it's done a lot of damage in people feel as though, you know, maybe they don't even deserve to get help or they're too ashamed to ask for help because they feel as though, well, I deserve to have this, right? I've done something to bring this upon myself. And, um, you know, that's not to say that there aren't certain things that we do that, that, you know, help deteriorate our mental health. But look, some people struggle with depression. Some people are born with, um, you know, a predisposition to certain behaviors, and some people aren't. It just is what it is. And so um, if it is something that is, you know, for a particular person, I just want them to know that it's not their fault, yeah. Yeah. but that there's a, an incredible amount of, 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 of resources out there. And the thing that I'd want them to know is, that, like, again, just to take depression as an example, look, the, st- the statistics prove out that when people seek treatment for depression, we have an almost 80% success rate for people who then experience a significant reduction in symptoms. Mm. So, I mean, 80%. That's not to say you're going to be cured, that it's going to go away, but 80% of people feel better that have depression once they enter treatment versus those who don't. Well, is is the headwind, and again, I'm just connecting dots here, so forgive me if I'm wrong, is the headwind of, of what each day that 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 you are helping people overcome is is shame like the great big thing i mean is mm-hmm. that is that is that the elephant in the room that mm. more often than not you know needs to be talked about yeah i would say it's that that's a really good question i would i would i would nuance it slightly Please. and say that the greatest I think the greatest illness that I can that I see is self hatred. Wow. Um, wow. I think that through all of it, 
So through just the person who's kind of suffering from like just what we might call like garden variety anxiety to someone who's in the throes of, you know, meth addiction to a dissatisfied spouse in a marriage, I am consistently confronted with our inability to love ourselves Mm. And even further, a deep down self-hatred that I think is fueled, right? Yes. Um, which tells us that we're very, very shameful, uh, you know, of who we are. Shame is a, is, is, is a, is a huge, is a huge piece of it. Um, I read a, I read a story the other day by a woman who um, is a psychologist and she'd also, um, she's a Buddhist and she'd studied um, for many, many years with some Buddhist monks. And she describes uh, a time when the Dalai Lama came and was speaking to some psychologists. And uh, after one of the breaks, these uh, psychologists kind of ran up to the Dal- Dalai Lama and they were like, hey, um, wh- t- tell, us, tell us what you think about you know, self-hatred. This is something you know, we see um, and so many of our clients, you know, um, you know, it's confusing. You know, what, what, do you, what do you think about this? You know, what's the root of this? And the Dalai Lama said, well, self, what, what do you mean self-hatred? And then you're like, you know, you know, people like they, they don't like themselves. They can't like accept themselves. He's like, oh, wait, I, I don't understand. People don't like themselves. And they're like, well, why aren't you getting this? Yes, people don't like themselves. And the Dalai Lama said, is this like a clinical disorder? And they're like, no, people just don't like themselves. And the Dalai Lama's response was, how can someone not like themselves when we all have Buddha nature? Mm. And what I think, you know, he was getting at, you know, that very Eastern perspective, right? This sense of like, you know, no self, but like the way that maybe more common like language in the West or within the Christian faith is, you know, this idea that, you know, all humans are created in the image of God. And if that is the case, right, underneath all this, all of this shame and all of this weight of the brokenness of our own lives and of this world is this ability, right, to know God and to become like God. And I found that it is just really difficult. Mm for people to access that. And, um, and probably. so I find myself c- confronting with yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, probably in a Bible belt culture too, that all too often begins with the posture of an, uh, an original sin being a more interesting conversation than original blessing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Then that's, that's super hard to overcome as well. It's really, it's really hard to overcome and it's it's um people i think we have and you and you know this and i think probably a lot of your listeners this is a new information for them but you know we have dropped off almost completely the project of and the importance of knowing oneself in relation to knowing god mm. you know so mm. so many people in this bible belt culture will come and you know, they're suffering and they've, they know a lot about God. They've been given a lot of doctrine, right? 
lot of theology. They've applied a lot of these beliefs to their lives, but they've spent very little time understanding who it is that they are. And if you, you know, look back, right, for the first thousand years of Christianity, that was actually, you know, very significant. That was the conversation. Yeah, that was the conversation. You know, Augustine, all the fathers made this clear. It's like, there's no way you're going to know God without knowing yourself. (laughs) There's no way you're going to know yourself without knowing God. And now we just seem to think, well, if we just know about God, that'll be enough. No, 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 it's not. And so part of the work of psychotherapy, another added benefit of it, and this is what I would say to maybe even if somebody's listening and they think, well, I don't think I suffer from, you know, depression or or anxiety or, or whatever that might be. I wonder if if some therapy would be applicable in my life, you know, I would ask like, how much time have you given to yourself to explore your own internal life? Have you allowed yourself, have you afforded yourself that privilege to reflect back upon the life that you've lived and done so, you know, with a person who's trained to listen to you, you know, about that. There can be, it's, it's, it can be one of the greatest blessings and gifts that you give to yourself to more deeply reflect upon who you are and what that might mean for your present and for your future. Yeah, yeah, well said. Triggers the Meister Eckhart, uh, the eye through which I see God is the eye through which God sees me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. that subject-to-subject knowing of the divine, at least for me, was, was was a great shift, a great leap into, um, that spiritual intimacy with your maker, you know? Uh-huh. And it's like, why? Why is it so hard to hear that if if you are made in that image, and 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 you take John's ludicrous claim that that image is love, mm. mercy, that's it's too good. Um, it's too good, yeah. So sorry, I took us off on a tangent there. No, uh, man, it's beautiful. <laughs> we need to hear it. We need to hear it over um, and over again. So uh, in in the book, you write. So much of these things, be it anxiety, depression, what have you, they come fast. They come very quickly. And mm. I'm, I've always been super curious about preventative measures uh, that we can take across the board, spiritually, uh, physiologically, now even mentally. From your perspective, what could you share with our listeners as like a practice, a discipline, a routine, so, something that like you constantly see beautiful results from uh, in the people that you've been entrusted to, you know, try to maneuver these waters and maybe have more good days than bad days, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think keeping in mind, you know, the the thing we all learned in our our psych 101, if you can go back to that when you're a freshman in college, and, and we learned about this biopsycho, you know, social approach uh, to our to our mental health, you know, understanding ourselves to be these complicated beings who have biology, we have psychology, we have our sociology, you know, how we relate to other people, and then I would add our, our spirituality. One way to sort of conceive of taking care of oneself is to view those four spheres and to say, okay, I know that if I'm going to be as preventative as I can, like with my mental health, which I conceive of as the foundation for overall health. So when I talk about mental health, 
right? I want everyone, if they can, to think of it as on a continuum. So if on one end of the continuum, you have mental health, the other end of the continuum is mental illness. And the reality is that all of us exist somewhere along the continuum and we're moving back and forth always. So very similar to physical health. I mean, who amongst us can really ever say, okay, I am completely healthy, right? Or I am completely ill. No, the reality is you're somewhere on the continuum and it changes dramatically throughout your life. So if we think about mental health that way, where it's not binary, it's either you're mentally healthy or you're mentally ill, it's like, no, you're somewhere on the continuum. The way that we can best keep ourselves on the side closer to mental health is by taking care of our biology, our psychology, our sociology, and our spirituality. So if you think about biology, right, some of us, we're going to be genetically predisposed to certain conditions, or our brain chemistry might need some attunement. So we can take care of ourselves there fundamentally by we know all the basic things, sleeping, exercising, what we eat. But that's where with mental health, if we feel like we're suffering from something, well, we might need to avail ourselves to a physician, ideally a psychiatrist, if we're going to think through whether or not some kind of antipsychotic um, drug right, may be appropriate to take care of our, our biology. So just to make the example more concrete for, for myself, um, I, I, I take an antidepressant and I've done this for years. And I know that if I were to stop taking that, right, that's not going to be good for my biology. That's something that I have to do to take care of my biology along with everything else that I do. So, I'm, so, I, so taking care of your biology, understanding, right, that the, the, the brain <laughs> is a part of the body, right, and the mind, the result of this brain, this is all connected. Everything that we do with our body is going to affect our mental health. Secondly, psychologically, we want to think about our, our thought patterns. And this is really where talk therapy mm -hmm. can come into play or just having trusted friends, support network of being able to talk it out. Oftentimes, we can get stuck into these self-defeating thinking patterns, and we think that these things are true, right? And we think that this is how it's got to be. Or we, you know, we catastrophize and we don't know that we're catastrophizing. Yeah. So this is where the importance of taking those internal conversations and making them external so we can, you know, get some feedback. We can kind of understand what's going on with us psychologically. So availing yourself to actually talking about what's going on in, inside your head. In terms of sociology, uh, I was talking with a, an addiction psychiatrist recently. And this is a guy who who deals with people who oftentimes are kind of um, really in more life or death situations. You know, folks who are really far down the path with various you know substances. And he was telling me, he goes, man, if, if I can take one of my patients, even like the the ones who are, who are the most sick, and I can get them plugged in to a community, then half the battle is already won. Wow. And I'm like, did, I'm, I'm like, hold on for a second. You're telling me like you're, you know, an addiction specialist, you know, psych psychiatrist with sort of all the knowledge, all the research in the world. You're telling me that like just basically finding someone a friend wow. <laughs> will will take us half the way with serious addiction. He's like, that's exactly what I'm saying. Wow. And so I think oftentimes, right, we 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 don't appreciate right the how how important it is that like. We're just not created to be alone. Hmm. 
right? We're just not created to be alone. This attachment theory that we understand about babies and their primary caregivers is true in adult relationships. So making sure, right, that we're seen and that we're heard and that we're known by others is wildly important. So anytime we're, which I think is why so many people are, even in this year, grappling probably with some mental health issues in ways that they never did before, a lot of it is the product of this isolation that we've mm-hmm. had to experience, yeah. right? In the pandemic, so just taking care of that, you know, like looking at what kind, what kind of relationships do you have? What's the quality of those relationships? Do you have some people in your life who actually know you, and do you actually know them? So it's it's super important. And then taking seriously, you know, the spiritual life. This is where I think often this has probably been the primary crux of where there's been so much distrust between faith communities and the psychological community has been, well, look, you know, um, I think a lot of, a lot of um, more churchy people have said, you know, they're, they're, they're still thinking that everything that takes place in the psychological community is still so Freudian where like, mm-hmm. you know, all sort of religious belief or all of that is just kind of, you know, death denial and, and, and it's not helpful. Um, it, that, that's just, that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, so understanding that like how, how you address or how seriously you take your existential questions actually is really, really important, hmm. right? So kind of, kind of, you know, delving through and taking seriously what it means for you to know that your life is fleeting, to know that you're mortal, to know that you are, right, um, uh, alone, <laughs> you know, in this world, you know, to, to know that um, when you die, right, something's going to happen or something that's not going to happen, actually getting to the core of what you believe around those issues will affect your mental health. And we can't just de- deny that reality. So it's, it's the biopsychosocial spiritual approach, and that's going to look different for everybody, but I think it's it's helpful to at least be able to categorize it yeah. that way and yeah. say, okay, I've got these four buckets, and I need to tend to all of them. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, talk to me about technology and what you're seeing Uh where, where do we need like some hazard flags? <laughs> where, yeah. Like, is is do we all need to? Uh, I know our phone tells us how long we look at it each day, um, yeah. but yeah. like, surely um, there's something that maybe there's a dialogue there that I think uh, we could all, you know, wake up to a little bit more. Um, yeah, go ahead. That's a good question. You know, I. I'm certainly not one of those people that thinks that, you know, it's the technology that is all of a sudden bringing about the crisis, right? I don't, I think there are ways in which it doesn't help. I think that, you know. Does it um, contribute to the talk pattern and shame? That's probably a better question. Yep, that's 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 the exact right question, I think. Here's where it contributes, I think, the most. Because, of course, you could take that, discussion in so many different ways i said earlier that i think one of the greatest you know illnesses that we see is just this inability to love oneself what i think is happening that's most destructive with the phones and social media 
is that it keeps us in this place and it fosters the practice of constant comparison to other people. Hmm. And so what this does is it keeps us in a place of always being aware that somebody else is either doing it differently than we're doing it or doing it better than we're doing it or doing it in the way that we wish we could have done it or doing it in the way that we know we're never going to quite be able to do it. Mm. And we know that that doesn't foster mental stability. The, the way through kind of, I think the, the, how do we learn to love ourselves is in large part learning to only compare ourselves to ourselves. Mm. I do not think it's helpful for the most part to constantly compare ourselves to other people. The healthy question, especially if someone is struggling with loving themselves is who am I today in comparison to who I was yesterday? Because what that does is that gets us out of this framework of trying to fabricate some kind of like version of perfection that we have in our mind, which is what's getting projected out constantly through our phone are these idealized versions of lives that aren't real anyway. But what it does is it keeps us locked into that framework of I'm trying to achieve that versus let me find some peace and satisfaction in my own progress. If I can learn to enjoy this progress and this process, right, and the goodness of it versus trying to achieve this sort of static condition of perfection, then I think we can be happier. I think we can find more peace. And so with the technology, um, it, it, it fosters that comparison, that comparison mode. And, and and the other thing that it, that it does, I think, I mean, it does a lot of things, but I think it prevents us, at least in my own life, it, it, it doesn't make it easier for me to do deep work and deep thinking. Mm. It really truncates my, my spaces of boredom and my times of just being with myself because it allows me too easy of a release with my own anxieties. And so I just never, I never have to be alone with myself if I don't want to be, you know, like even at a stoplight, I don't have to be alone. (laughs) If there's an uncomfortable thought, right. I can numb it with a shot of dopamine by by just opening up Facebook, and if there's a notification or something, then boom, I'm distracted, right? Yeah. Um, and you can just apply that across the board with all of it. And so, if there's anything that that I think we we need to be made aware of, it I, I don't think the answer is throwing this stuff out the window, because in some ways I'm so grateful for the ways in which we're able to connect to one another, particularly right now. I mean, the technology yeah. and mental yeah. health and the way that people can get to providers, you know, through telehealth and, and all the rest, but we've got to be mindful. I think those would be the two things that I would say, be mindful if it's, if it's helping you uh, or if it's, if it's making it more difficult for you to, to just compare yourself to yourself, if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, I'd be, I'd watch that. And then I'd really watch and try and be mindful of, how much you allow yourself to be alone with yourself because being alone with ourselves is what necessarily part of the work that we have to do to know ourselves. <laughs> and if we're never alone with ourselves, we, we, we're, we're never going to come to know who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, 
so man, in, in digging into this work, um, I, I really got the gist that like your heart is for peace, for liberation, uh, mm. for, for joy to be restored into people's lives who, um, I feel like it's a book anyone can read, right? I mean, when I asked the question of who would you invite to read this book, I, I, I feel like the answer is everybody. Well, I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like it's, it's everybody. Um, because even if you're not suffering, um, I promise you that someone that you know or love is suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do is, of course, like if, if somebody's listening and, and they are suffering, I want them to read the book because I want them to know they're not alone. And I want them to know that there um, are, 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 are resources, right, to, to be had, like I've said. Because part of the book is I tell some of my own story and my own journey, but I tried to make the book as accessible as possible. And so it's not like a tome, but it actually has got some practical guidance. So it so not only tells my own story of my own battles with depression, uh, anxiety, times of drinking too much alcohol, but also like how it is that we go about getting to the resources, right? So what does it mean? What does it look like to go to a therapist? What's that going to look like? How do I find a therapist, right? What does it mean to consider um, taking medication? How is it that I should go about that? What are the questions that I should be thinking about, asking about? How do I think about plugging myself into a community? How do I surround myself, right, with the support network? So it's got that kind of practical access for the people who are suffering. But then it's also got just even more some existential chapters, which just sort of take up the issue of like, well, why does this exist even in the first place, right? Why do we have mental illness? And how do I nuance that from mental health? Well, you know, what does that mean? I've got a chapter on um, suicide, right? What, what does it mean when someone kills themselves? Um, how do we process through that? Um, all, all sorts of more kind of existential questions like that. And then also just for their chapters and aspects of the book that are designed to equip those of us who love people who are going through this to know how to best support them. Because I find that a lot of times people also are wary of this conversation or inquiring for people that they suspect are suffering because they worry that they're not going to know what to say or not know what to do. And if, you know, one of the things I really want to dispel is that I want to encourage people to check in on the people that they love if they suspect that they're suffering, because you don't need to have all the answers. What you need is just to help the person feel like they've been seen and they've been heard. And so I, you know, I tell people and kind of describe in the book, here's some questions that you can ask. Here are some things to maybe steer away from. And here's how you can be most, most helpful. And hopefully what that does is take down some of that fear factor. Um, so people not only, you know, raise their hand and say, I need help, but also maybe are a little bit more courageous to go to their friends and family and say, Hey, I want to check on you. I noticed this. How are you feeling? I'm here for you. And you know, Here's what could be done. So beautiful, beautiful man. Yeah. Well, I know it's a much needed conversation, and uh, thank you for your bravery and courage for sharing, you know, your story in there, and for putting this out into the world. I know that um, I'm certain it's gonna create some healing in people's lives. So kudos to you. January fifth, it's available everywhere. How can we follow you and your work? Where are you going to send us? What should where, where do we go to find the book? Where do we go to follow you? 
Yeah, thanks. Well, you can find me online. Um, everything is sort of at Ryan Casey Waller, my full name, Ryan Casey Waller, Casey with a C. Um, on Facebook and on Instagram, you can also find me at RyanCaseyWaller.com. And you can go, of course, the book's going to be available everywhere books are sold. So you can go to, you know, Amazon is the easiest, you know, place. But you can also go to thingswedontwanttalkabout.com. And on that website, thingswedontwanttalkabout.com, you'll find information about the book. You'll find uh, a book trailer um, telling you about the book. And you'll find uh, links to all the, the retailers um, everywhere where the book is sold from that particular website. So all those places, man. Right on, right on. Well, man, thank you so much for joining us and for your time and energy. And uh, you're more than welcome here anytime you want to come and share with us uh, new things you're finding and conversations that you think are necessary uh, today. So super grateful for you, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. It was an honor, buddy. All right, man. We'll chat soon. Okay. 